0: this could increase the differential reward that a home staker gets relative to a liquid staking derivative, which is a dynamic we've never had in the history of Ethereum, is there is no preferential value of decentralization. By creating a market for decentralized trust, we are letting the market discover the true value of decentralized trust and as opposed to the value of economic trust.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research, presented by Chainalysis and Flipside. We are recording this episode on January 9th, and we have a great interview coming uh, coming at you guys with Sriram, the founder of EigenLayer. Uh, incredibly info packed uh, interview, and it's pretty hard not to be bullish on Ethereum scaling after you kind of like hear kind of what EigenLayer's vision is and how they're going to you know really help facilitate that that uh, roll centric roadmap. Um, and you know, we're joined in for our intro section as usual by Westy, but also a new face has joined us. So Ren has recently joined the Blockworks research team, super excited to have him here. Uh, and he's going to hop right into the fire, hopping on, the you know, an episode of zero X research, just one week joining into the team. So we love that. Uh, and as usual, we're going to hop straight into our hot seat, cool throne segment. Uh, Westie, you want to go ahead and kick us off?
2: Yeah, I can start us off with the first hot seat. So, Barry Silbert and DCG are back in the hot seat this week. Um, basically, there's more developments in the saga. I'm not sure when the last time we talked about it was, but basically Cameron Winklevoss, one of the Winklevi, owner of Gemini Exchange, essentially had a an open letter on his Twitter um, to Barry and DCG, basically one outing that they had $900 million uh, given to Genesis that they still haven't heard about uh in many weeks as well as outed um dcg in that they owe genesis apparently 1.675 billion dollars which barry uh denied in his first tweet in a very long time um at the same time a lot of these barry coins as we call them uh the ones that barry owned have been getting shorted pretty heavily although this week they've been up like a good amount so that would be what near as a main one Uh, Zach is another uh, they're doing pretty well off of these short squeezes that we've seen a lot of these assets But yeah, I mean, I think yesterday was January 8th as of this recording And that was the day that uh, he was given in that letter to give some uh, feedback and clarification to uh, Gemini and so yeah, we haven't really heard anything since then so yeah, we're just sort of waiting to hear what he has to say but Yeah, definitely in the hot seat again this week. Yeah, there's so much
3: uncertainty, it seems like, around that entire situation with the closed-end trust trading at such a heavy discount to NAV. And I see people on Twitter all the time trying to, you know, jump in on that and call the bottom of the discount and and then ride it back up to par. But no one seems to know still exactly how they're going to you know get through their troubles and if dissolving some some of the trusts is a part of the part of the equation so i don't know if anyone here has any insight on that but that's uh definitely something i'm paying attention to and i have no idea how it's actually going to play
4: out yeah i think someone's definitely making a move today with regards to gbtc if you've seen the discount it's moved from roughly 50 percent to 40 percent today Maybe it coincided over the weekend with BlackRock announcing that it's willing to accept Bitcoin for one of its $15 billion funds, even though they're only accepting Bitcoin cash set of futures, which is, if I'm not wrong, what the GBTC or one of the BTC ETFs is based uh, Not an ETF, one of the BTC uh, products is based on. No one has a spot ETF yet. So those two may be linked. And perhaps something is happening behind the scenes with regards to closing that discount and potentially helping DCG out.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, Jason Yanowitz had a pretty good thread about like the stages of the bear market with the last really being that boring phase. And every time I hear Barry Silbert, like at this point, my eyes just glaze over. It's very much hit me on that boring phase. Like I'm really ready to move past this. You know, we always talk about all the exciting innovation that uh, is really happening in the space right now. And I, I just can't wait for the days where uh, we're not worried about which CFI lender or related entity is, is has to be, belong in the hot seat. Um, but but Ren,
4: I'll go ahead and pick on you here. Who do you got in the hot seat this week? This week I have Wire in the hot seat. So if you're unfamiliar with Wire, they're basically a kind of crypto fintech company that offers on-ramping, off-ramping, KYC, broker exchanges, money exchange company. And they're sort of more of a traditional banking company, so to say. A lot of large crypto institutions use them for on-ramping and off-ramping services ones that you're familiar with, MetaMask, uh, OpenSea, and they've also had several significant partnerships with fintech companies trying to make strides into crypto such as Visa. Importantly, last year, they announced a $1.5 billion deal which would have been one of the largest private aspect deals with Bolt. Um, Bolt is also a shopper network company, very heavy in the fintech space, but that deal fell apart in the second half of the year. Um, And after that event, a few days ago, WIRE have announced that they are closing down business going forward and they've also limited customer withdrawals where users can only withdraw 90% of their funds on the platform. It's a pretty significant uh, thing that's happening in the space given that on-ramping and off-ramping is still a very significant part of the user experience for one to access crypto. And so it's definitely one to watch where these large platforms pivot to next in terms of a more stable and perhaps secure on ramp slash off ramp service, or if the industry has other solutions to the problem.
1: Yeah, the 90% number is weird to me, it's like, what are they what what is what's the speculation around why they're like withholding that 10%? Is that some sort of underbacking? Is that some sort of like insurance that they're trying to keep for themselves? Like any ideas on kind of like what why choose 90%?
4: I don't have a good idea. I I agree with you that the 90% seems weird even before there were troubles or they announced that they were shutting down. Wire did have daily withdrawal limits, but they didn't have any deposit limits. So if I had to guess, it's just that their infrastructure isn't set to handle that type of volume. Because if your company is announcing it's shutting down, I would assume all of your customers will want to withdraw in one go. And perhaps trying to process all of that in one or a few days would cause a lot of problems.
3: That makes a lot of sense. But I agree, Dan. That was like the first thing that popped in my head. I'm like 90%. At least this isn't an FTX situation where it's just you know, cut the gates like completely closed and you can't get any of your money off. So I guess that's kind of a good sign in terms of uh, the health of the actual company despite the bankruptcy. But that kind of segues pretty well into my cool throne of the week, which is uh, Coinbase Pay integrating uh, with Ribbon to make it easier for users to deposit directly into decentralized options vaults and earn a yield on their holdings. Uh, I just think any integration that you can do to make onboarding people on chain is is a good thing. And then we also saw Uniswap implement uh, direct uh, deposits uh, into your account, into your wallet through MoonPay. So that way people can, you know, kind of skip centralized exchange experiences all around and just get straight on chain into DeFi. So there's not really a whole lot to say about these two, but I just am super excited about the the prospects of improving the user experience going forward. And I think that reducing that friction is going to, You know increase uh just people's willingness to self-custody and the more actions that are done on chain versus a centralized entity is is always better the
1: uniswap one really gets me excited like no thinking like take yourself back to where we were maybe last november peak bull market everything everyone's trying to buy everything at all times you know imagine just logging pulling up uniswaps uh the uniswap interface and just swiping a credit card to buy you know, whatever shitcoin was pumping like that's, that's a dangerous thing that is jet fuel uh, for peak bubble environments. And it gets pretty funny to think about uh, what the implications that have now, uh, if, if we're, you know, run it back and recycle, I think that's going to be such a catalyst.
2: Yeah, I've always said that the on and on, off ramp
1: was the most underrated
2: development in crypto. Because like you said, that really is like the biggest onboarding user experience like hack that we've had so far. Whereas I know when I first got into DeFi, you had to like figure out what a MetaMask was and like you had to go from your exchange specifically with like ETH or USDC and then bridge it over and then trade. Whereas this makes it so much easier. And I know looking back, if I had some sort of on-ramp that was super easy with Uniswap, that would have been onboarded so much easier. And I know all of us, like once we've used Uniswap for the first time or some DeFi app, that was sort of like magic to us, right? Like... Being able to actually trade an asset that fast um, just over Wi-Fi, I thought was like one of the most mind blowing things I've ever experienced. And so if you can do that from your bank into DeFi like that quick, I think that really brings a lot of people on board because they get to have the experience a lot easier.
3: Yeah. And props to Coinbase as well. Like you wouldn't think they'd want to support a decentralized alternative to themselves as easily. Like you'd think they'd want to increase that friction, not decrease that friction. So, I'd, I wish there was a good way to track. Maybe Dan or Westy or, or Ren will, will have a good idea on this one, but it'd be kind of cool to see how utilized that function is. I don't know exactly how you do that. I guess you just have to look at Coinbase hot wallets and see if there's like an increase in, in outbound activity. Um, and then, you know, if there's trades being placed by those user recipients on Uniswap, that would be like a, a signal, but probably not an easy uh, query to put together. So, I'll, I'll leave that
1: to you, Dan, if you need to, if you want to try that one. Mm, my weekend's now cut out from. Me. Thank you, Sam. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. You know, I'm always bullish on increased simplification of crypto, right? Like it's still so damn hard to, to do anything uh, in DeFi, so making it easier is just a net good. Uh, but to move on to another cool throne, you know, ZeroX Research have uh, listeners. I've been hearing this one for a couple weeks now, um, as well as Blockworks uh, Research Twitter followers, but. LSDs—they're white hot right now. That's—that's that's been the narrative of the past couple days, maybe the past week. And you know, if you look at some of these uh, liquid staking governance token price action, Lido up 74%, Frax shares up 26%, Rocket Pool 21, Anchor 32, Stakewise 60. Uh, if you kind of like compound narratives and go Cosmos app chain and and liquid staking, and you look at the Stride token, that's up some 80 odd percent this week as well. Uh, so it's it's it 's pretty clear that you know there 's going to be almost like these Wesley always calls them like the cartels are going to form uh, around around the liquid staking industry, and it makes a ton of sense like you have uh, the assets that are you know verifying ethereum and controlling the network so uh, where these assets flow and how decentralized they become are going to be obviously very important you uh, know that 's always a hot topic as well, but uh, you know, I think the the attention right now is really more so around the fact that they 're going to be printing money come the next bull market when uh, liquid staking is up, you know, 10x and the, you know, Ethereum's price starts running, then therefore the, the US dollar value uh, of the revenue is, is exploding as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is not financial advice, but you can just look at how LDO traded right before the merge, where it pumped absolutely out of nowhere and to a ridiculous amount. I think that's what we're seeing now, sort of en- uh, entering into Shanghai and the withdrawals. And I think um, a lot of price action will probably be the same as well as another catalyst this year is eigenlayer which sort of increases the value of staked eth and so i think um both these catalysts both shanghai and eigenlayer both will provide value to to lsds um and yeah i think there'll be trades for these lsd governance tokens based on both events as we're already seeing
1: i also think a lot of that really has to do with it's just so eat like it's so easy to understand how the cash flow will accrue to these governance tokens, right? Like, you know, they, the protocols themselves are making revenue, and then they take a cut of that. You know, uh, like Lido takes 10%, 10% and splits it 5% to node operators and 5% to the treasury. Um, and then, of course, token holders, you know, it, it's a DAO controlled by token holders. So at some point, there will be like that same fee switch uh conversation we see around uniswap but returning revenue to token holders um and it's just like a little bit easier of a model to understand i think than something like you know a lending protocol that has creates revenue but then is like you know filling its like uh reserves more so than like considering drawing uh value back to token holders itself so i think it's just an easy model for people to understand as well and i just think that goes a long way in in uh in an environment like this
3: yeah, something I've been thinking a little bit about is just under the proof of work, you know, paradigm, you've you've obviously got four sellers to cover electricity bills and stuff like that. But I'm trying to figure out where the new four seller dynamic comes in a proof of stake Ethereum. It's like, are these big lsd cartels eventually going to try and de-risk from their eth holdings and hold maybe more stable coins and if so how do they do that do they become a big structural seller do they return the eth straight back to token holders eventually through a governance proposal and let them decide what to do with it i'm not really sure but that's definitely something i'm paying attention to
2: given the transition to proof of stake i don't think there's any forced sellers because with proof of work like miners basically have to sell their emissions in order to pay off their their hardware and their electricity costs, but I do think eventually staking will be used for a lot of people as income, um, especially as as ETH progresses. And so eventually there'll be quote unquote like forced selling of the yield. I think most of the yield that comes from ETH will eventually be sold, and so I think that in of itself is the forced selling. So that would be like emissions that that come from ETH staking. Uh, but I don't think in the short term, I think a lot of the people that are staking now are doing so for the long term, but eventually those will definitely be for sellers.
4: Yeah, going along what Sam said about LSD cartels, I think one important thing for us to keep in mind is the degree of decentralization between these LSD protocols. We've had some debates where Individuals say for example, between Lido and Coinbase they make up more than fifty percent of stake thief and thus Ethereum has a Nakamoto coefficient enough to um, I disagree. But I think for example, like Lido has to go through a validator like vetting mechanism. They have around twenty nine node operators today, they just add a one today, block X ro- roots And so yeah, I think that decentralization that decentralization part we should never forget especially given the concentration of EVE on Coinbase, which I actually think will increase going forward given their regulatory compliance and as more institutional capital comes into the space, along with their custody capabilities. Yeah,
2: Ethereum's also adding distributed validator technology, and specifically Lido is implementing that as well. Um, So if you go down that rabbit hole, you'll see that yeah, Ethereum is going to be a lot more decentralized than it is now or even now, like like you said, the Nakamoto code of coefficient of two doesn't really tell the whole story of the decentralization. It's only going to get better from here.
1: Yeah, and you know that's. I think we can talk about liquid staking derivatives for quite literally the end of time. And I, I also feel like that's you know justified. They're they're the hot asset, and they're going to continue to be the hot asset uh, with not only the rest of kind of the the tail end of this bear market, but also pushing into the bull of the future. Uh, but moving on to our flip side analyst dashboard of the week. Uh, this one is built by Jack guy uh, I think he's actually the number one flipside analyst based on their recent rankings so complete stud uh, in the sequel dashboard game but uh, he's actually this one is built on bonk which is the latest meme token of course it's a dog token and this one's actually lives on Solana uh, but looking at some of these stats it's pretty pretty wild just to see you know what meme tokens still have the potential to do uh, if we look at like the you know, price percent change on a daily basis. It's got like back to back 100 plus percent price action. Um, And, you know, activity is still up and looking pretty healthy relatively. Um, Of course, as these things generally do, they hit a peak and return back to original value and, you know, never kind of see the light again. So um, it's always fascinating to watch, you know, what the latest meme token is and kind of how how it develops but we'll see we'll see how long the bonk saga can can carry on for
3: i actually saw something interesting on this on twitter today it was looking at um solana dex volumes over the last it was like weekly dex volumes over the last year and it's pretty impressive how even before bonk did launch solana dex volumes were, were increasing despite how negative the the connotation around solana has been ever since ftx you know collapsed so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with you, Dan, I'd be careful touching this one. Although I will say, I don't think Solana has its own native dog token. That's super successful. And, you know, Ethereum obviously has a few that are up there in the top 20, top 15, so I will never fade a dog token.
1: Yeah, and one thing to just note on this is I've seen a lot of posts on Twitter and whatnot it's kind of circulating like, oh, Sol- the, you know, Solana's back. Like, look at all the transaction volume. Look at all the activity going on on chain. Uh, and a lot of that is driven by this specifically this Bonk token. Uh, so just be careful with like, you know, how you interpret information. And having one meaningful meme token on your, on your network certainly doesn't reflect that you're in like, uh, a robust ecosystem by any means. But uh, that's not a shot at Solana. You know, just you know, something to, to be... On the lookout for when you see some uh, transaction volume charts sorting around and a great way to kind of like dive through and tear through that data is using things like flipside which you know provide the most comprehensive on-chain data in crypto and you know give you the ability to determine you know what's what's correct and you know what's inaccurate um so getting the ability to qu- query this data yourself is just like unlimited potential uh and flipside just does a great job of giving this data away for free uh with great web tools they've recently launched a new ui i love using their new ui um, and it's it just it's just a breeze. And so if you want to kind of get involved in starting to you know, work on some bounties, uh, we actually have something linked in the show notes for you and uh, for the opportunity to earn some free USDC.
3: I also want to take a second to thank our other wonderful sponsor, Chainalysis. They are providing the tools that investors need to help legitimize our industry. They allow investors to track funds on chain with ease in a way that was prior not possible. They also have some great research on their website, which is available for free, which we'll be sure to link to in the show notes. And they also have some really cool classes that go really in-depth on a lot of different in-the-weeds info that a lot of people don't know about in crypto, so I highly recommend checking that out. Again, thank you to Chainalysis for being such a wonderful sponsor, and
1: please check them out in the show notes. All right, everyone. Welcome back. We have a great uh, great guest for you today. It's Sriram from Eigenlayer. He's the founder. Uh, so before I kind of pass it over to you, Sriram, uh, you know, i just love to get a, a little bit of a background of, uh, you know, kind of how you got into crypto uh, and ultimately what led you to founding Eigenlayer uh, and kind of a, a brief overview of what exactly uh, Eigenlayer and EigenDA is.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Dan and Sam, for uh, inviting me to be here today. Um, a quick overview about myself. I'm Sriram. Uh, I've been working on this project, Eigenlayer, over the last uh, more than 18 months and uh, my uh, journey in crypto goes a little bit uh, further back i started uh, working on blockchain technology starting 2018 uh, at the university of washington where i run the university of washington blockchain research lab um the uh, my uh, interest in peer-to-peer systems uh, goes even further back my phd uh, which I started working on in two thousand eight was in peer to peer wireless systems. So I had like one um, journey in the peer to peer space, and uh, the thesis there was that wireless systems are going to be prevalent, and can we build these without having requiring infrastructure to to make them decentralized and controlled at the edges and That didn't quite pan out, so I got very excited that in 2018 when I learned that uh, there is this whole other revolution going on in blockchains. The ability for uh, us to create self-organizing systems of trust and cooperation is something that uh, deeply attracted me. So I got deep into it, worked on infrastructure layer, basically consensus protocols, scalability, when can you get different kinds of features, uh, uh, accountability, all of these things in blockchains. And um, one thing that I and one thing I was a little bit frustrated with in blockchain was the slow rate of innovation at the infrastructure layer. And uh, the if you look at the rate of one of the core value propositions of blockchain is the ability to do permissionless, composable innovation. Anybody can come up with a new idea and then go and build it without themselves having to be trusted because they can borrow trust from this massive decentralized source of trust, the blockchain. And But that was not quite true if you were trying to build anything at the infrastructure layer. Because if you want to build a new consensus protocol, a new scalability paradigm, any of these other things, you have to go create your own trust network, which is actually a huge friction. It's much, much harder than in like a comparable Web 2 paradigm where you say, hey, trust me. And then like you, you still need to establish trust on yourself, but it's far easier than establishing a new decentralized trust network. So every new like innovation at the infrastructure layer needed a new trust network, which is something that I got quite obsessed with this as a kind of fundamental problem. And I would say many years later, we kind of figured out this eigenlayer architecture, the idea that. That could be one general purpose trust network that serves anybody who wants to build new innovations, independent of what layer it is going to be
3: at. That's a super helpful uh, intro, and I appreciate a little bit of the history on yourself. Uh, do you mind kind of explaining uh, the idea of this trust layer? Like, so maybe going into like Ethereum and how it's how it's secured, and then also how you plan to borrow that security through Eigenlayer?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Ethereum recently uh, went through this major event, the merge, right, which moved it from a proof-of-work network to this proof-of-stake network. And, you know, people usually think about proof-of-stake as, oh, you know, we we were burning all this energy in proof-of-work and then we're now going to not burn this energy as the dominant feature. But I think there is something quite unique and very powerful about proof-of-stake, which is not true about proof-of-work, is proof-of-stake is entirely in the digital domain. What do I mean by that? Um, so suppose you know, a node which is participating in the proof-of-stake system misbehaves. Okay, They sign two things when they're not supposed to sign it. They sign an invalid block, whatever there is some provable misbehavior that a node engages in. And let's compare that node was a proof-of-work node, like doing mining, versus that node was a proof-of-stake node, where. The core idea of of Proof-of-Stake is you take some amount of digital assets, lock them up under the constraint and commitment that you're going to actually perform a certain set of actions that you have committed to, which is in the Ethereum case, block validation. You are actually running an Ethereum node and uh, genuinely participating in block validation. And this is what your commitment is. You're making actually a commitment to the Ethereum network, putting down a stake, which is a bunch of digital assets, making a claim that you will hold by your commitments. Let's examine what happens in proof of work when you betray your work, betray your commitments. And what happens in proof of stake when you betray your commitments. In proof of work, if you betray your commitments, the worst thing that could happen is you may not get your block reward because you know there's a longest chain and you mine something and it doesn't become the longest chain. You mine an invalid block, other miners reject it. The worst thing that could happen to you the worst negative liability that you can face is not getting your reward in a proof of work network in a proof of stake network it's not just that you don't get your reward you're going to lose your deposit like you're going to lose uh, your pile of like digital assets that you put down on the ethereum blockchain and this is a huge change in the incentive structure imagine you want to construct Uh, a digital world of cooperation and in one world the only thing that you have is carrots and no sticks. In another world you have carrots and sticks, you have rewards and penalties. The scope of what systems can exist in one world versus the other world are poles apart. Like you cannot imagine constructing a society with common law or any other legal system in the absence of negative incentives. It's not enough to have positive incentives because your downside is capped by zero. I can do like arbitrarily bad things and what's going to happen? Like, I'm not going to get a reward. Okay, I still try it. Like, it's, it's going to tempt people into misbehaviors that simply are impossible in a proof-of-stake network. So proof-of-stake to me is a fundamental transition from a world- where only positive incentives are possible to a world where positive and negative incentives are possible. Okay, so that's a major transition. That's what the merge signifies for us as like uh, academic researchers, of course, in addition to like the benefits of not having to uh, burn excess energy when not needed. But when you think about the Just to complete this story, if you think about trying to apply such a negative punishment in a proof of work world, what would you have to do? There is a miner who is doing some like bad action. What you have to do is you have to go and figure out where that mining equipment is and burn it. Right. Like that's really what you have to do to actually penalize that miner. It's ludicrous as it sounds. That's roughly the effect that is equivalent to what you can do in staking, which is slashing. Slashing is basically the ability to take away your funds when you engage in provably bad misbehaviors. So, once you have these two dimensions, now what you can do is you can start thinking can I borrow this trust? So, how is the trust of what is the root of trust? What is the basis of trust of Ethereum? is that there is this common layer where like people are putting down a large enough pool of money and they're committing to participating in block validation and block finalization. And if they misbehave in any way, they're going to lose this uh, money. So this is the root of trust of Ethereum. Now you can ask, suppose I want to use this same trust in building other things. How can I use the same trust network? In actually uh, and take it up to support other things that other people may build? And I should say that this is not an originally new question from us because this is already there in the Ethereum landscape and thinking. This is the paradigm. The initial way in which this is reflected is the layer 2 roll-ups, right? You have this existing trust network, and I want to run way more computation than what this network is currently capable of. So I say, hey, you just do your computation on your own like personal node or whatever, but prove to me that you did the computation correctly. And if you can do this, then after the proof has been submitted and validated on Ethereum, you still get the same trust that that is done correctly because the cryptography assures you that the the thing you did the computation correctly and the finalization of Ethereum guarantees that, hey, actually this uh, proof was verified by all these stakers and it, so you get the same security model in the layer two paradigm but the the only things that it allows you to do are to basically offload computation right you offload a lot of computation and you still can kind of get the benefits of the uh, ethereum trust in this offloaded computation but there is a whole host of other things you may want to do Uh, in improving the Ethereum protocol. For example, Ethereum takes 12 seconds to make a block and several minutes, 6 to 12 minutes, to actually finalize a block. So it's going to take you 12 minutes to actually get um, a transaction in and get economic finality where you're really certified that you will not break it. And if people break it, they're going to actually suffer an economic penalty. And... You may come up with a new protocol, such as the ones that some of the new layer ones like Aptos and Sui have, you know, Nawal and Shark, uh, Naval and Tusk, or Bullshark, or whatever sets of new protocols that can actually arrive at consensus faster, arrive at consensus more scalably, do more, better signature amortization during consensus, have an inherent scalability layer built in. You may have like many new ideas for how to do all of these things. And it's simply not possible to borrow the Ethereum Trust Network today to actually go for you to go and do all these things. And our goal at Eigenlayer, since we as academics worked on questions like this, is how do we borrow Ethereum's Trust Network to do all these other things? And if the root of trust of Ethereum is the staking, which is you've locked on some bunch of stake, and then you're going to now hold to your credible commitment, which is that I'm going to validate the Ethereum blocks, The obvious question is, can you make this a little bit more of a free market? Whereas a staker, you don't only validate Ethereum blocks, but you also participate in my other, you know, SUI, let's say if it's building on Eigenlayer on Ethereum and say, oh, I'm actually running the SUI chain. I want to run a consensus protocol. I want to arrive at consensus and all of these things. So as a staker, I'm opting in to participate in this other service. So that's what happens in Eigenlayer. Eigenlayer is a marketplace where stakers can express their opt-in interest. They're opting in, right? It's not forced, but you can opt in if you want. You can opt in to participate in other systems that are then built on top of Eigenlayer. So you can think of Eigenlayer as enhancing the expressivity and flexibility of what the Ethereum Trust Network can do, what the Ethereum stakers can do. Today, they download and run the Ethereum client, but they can also run whatever other things other people deploy to them. And the structure of how this works is whenever you want to write a new service that's built on top of Eigenlayer, you have to do two things. One is you have to give a node client for that other system that people can download and run, stakers. Stakers. Who opt-in to your system. Uh, let's take for simplicity there is a, a new chain that you that people want to run. They're going to download and run your software for actually running this new client. Now what's happening is instead of in every blockchain system today where you have programmability at the level of the virtual machine right you can specify okay what happens in EVM bytecode, the Ethereum virtual machine bytecode. Or in some other like C-level or other languages, whatever different blockchains have different languages You can and virtual machines, you can specify in that virtual machine how you want to execute like a series of smart contracts, but you do not have access. So this this code, this virtual machine code is taken and mediated by the Ethereum or Solana or whatever protocol, how different nodes behave at different times, how they arrive at consensus, what all things happen. So you do not have any native programmability at the level of the distributed system. You have programmability at the level of this emergent interface. What EigenLayer lets you do is to give you full programmability at the level of the node software. Like you, it's like running a new network. You can just download and run this new node software. That each node, it could specify for each node what the set of actions is, what consensus means. Maybe there is no consensus. You just send a certificate back. Whatever the set of things is that specifies your particular service, you can write that into a node software But on Ethereum, so Eigenlayer itself is not a new chain or a network or anything. It is a series of smart contracts on Ethereum. So this series of smart contracts basically lets stakers express their opt-in interest to any set of new services that are built on top. So when you're building a new service, what you have to do is you have to write new service smart contracts that talk to the eigenlayer smart contracts. And these service smart contracts specify who can participate, which is entry conditions. What are the positive incentives? When you participate in validating the chain, I'm giving you like, okay, this this many tokens per hour or like per block or whatever, some reward rate. It also specifies uh, what the penalty system is. Says, oh, if you double sign on a block, which means you will sign on two SUI blocks simultaneously at the same block number, which is an express illegal action, and you're doing it to attack it, it's going to prove to you on the Ethereum smart contract that you have misbehaved and essentially slash you or take your ETH funds out. So, this is the core primitive. So there's a two sides of the marketplace. One side is eth stakers expressing their interest in opting in. The other side is new services creating service smart contracts and a pal service node that you can download and run as a staker. And that specifies the two sides of our market.
1: I'd love to dive deeper on both sides of those markets and if we start with the eth stakers. So as an ETH staker, like what would the incentive be to opt in to this network? Like, what do I get in return uh, for doing so? And, and then, what exactly would that process look like? Right. So, if you know, if validators need to run a specific software, would I be able to solo stake and do this, or would I have to use like a, a specific specific liquid staking derivative? Or just kind of how does that landscape look for the staker? Awesome.
0: Yeah. So let's go over the staker side a little bit more. So, firstly, we have many different types of restaking. So we call this entire paradigm restaking because you are using the stake to do additional things. And uh, the, the way restaking works is there are multiple different ways of doing restaking. The obvious, easy, simple way to understand is liquid restaking. What is liquid restaking? You take, you, you have already staked in some liquid staking derivative. You have a liquid staked token, and then you're coming and saying, hey, I have this teeth, I have a Coinbase, eat, whatever other things, and then I'm going to kind of deposit that into the eigenlayer contracts and specify that I'm going to and specify who is going to be my operator, who's going to run the node for me. It could be either yourself or you may want to say, hey, just let the Lido guys run it or let the Coinbase guys run it or somebody else run it, right? Like Figment or somebody run it. So you can state, you you first have like what you're staking, which could be a liquid staking derivative that you're locking on. And you can also specify who your operator is, which could be yourself or somebody else that you trust. So that's up to the staker because they're putting their money in and they're taking a risk. They have a flexibility in specifying who's doing the operations for them. Okay, this is one mode of restaking we call native res- uh, liquid restaking. So you take a liquid staking derivative and then you restake. But you could also be restaking what we call, performing what you call native restaking. What is native restaking? In native restaking, you are exactly like Dan asked. You are a home staker or a solo staker or a rocket pool staker or some... uh, you know, you don't have a lot of operational infrastructure and you want to participate. And also you don't already participate in a liquid staking derivative and you want to participate. The way you can participate with Eigenlayer is by setting. So normally in uh, setting your withdrawal credentials to Eigenlayer, I'll explain what the withdrawal credentials are. Normally when you're staking, You can specify who you're in on Ethereum. You you can specify who is running your node, responsible for operations, right? What their public key is and so on. You can specify who the fee recipient is, who's getting like fee and rewards, as well as who has the power to withdraw the stake. These are three dimensions when you're staking. And the way we engage with solo stakers and others who don't participate in liquid staking derivatives is by asking them, to set their withdrawal credentials to the eigenlayer smart contracts. I'm a homestaker. I set the withdrawal credentials to eigenlayer smart contracts, and it's, it's not the same as a liquid staking derivative, because for Ethereum, they are running their own node, right? And even after they set the withdrawal credentials to eigenlayer, what they're officially doing is they're giving withdrawal powers to the eigenlayer smart contracts. And What the Eigenlayer smart contracts would do is they would let you withdraw the stake whenever you want if you have not misbehaved on Eigenlayer. But if you have misbehaved on Eigenlayer, then you cannot, it will not let you withdraw all the stake because it will slash a portion of the stake and then only let you withdraw the remaining portion of the stake, which is not slashed by the Eigenlayer contracts. So essentially what you're doing is you are giving, you're just adding on this process in your withdrawal pipeline that you have to go through Eigenlayer, Eigenlayer will double check that you have not misbehaved. Only then you can withdraw. And what this does is this gives you uh and and inside Eigenlayer, you can because you're a solo staker and you want to participate only in services where uh you are yourself the operator, right? Like so there are two degrees of freedom now as a solo staker. You could say, hey, I want to run Ethereum node because you know. It's, you know, it's something that I'm contributing to censorship resistance, and I'm very passionate about it, and I want to do it, but I don't want to run all these services myself, uh, the other services on Eigenlayer myself. I could delegate for those services, so that's a possibility, but it's also a possibility for you to say, no, actually, this service is lightweight enough that my solo staking rig is good enough, and I'm going to run these services myself. So you have the freedom to either say that, you know, for all these other services, you're yourself the delegate or you're delegating to somebody else to actually then validate it. So that's the degrees of freedom on Eigenlayer is there is liquid restaking. You can take your liquid staking derivative and restake on Eigenlayer. You can be your own operator. You can be somebody else. Some, you can delegate somebody else to be your operator. If you're a home staker, you have full control and you want to be your own operator on Ethereum and on Eigenlayer. Or you can be your own operator on Ethereum, but somebody else can be your operator on some eigenlayer services so that's the full suite of degrees of freedom for a staker all
3: right that's that's a great high level overview there do you mind explaining in what event a malicious actor would actually be slashed and then to piggyback off that um how does the ethereum protocol itself know when uh i guess you know users of eigenlayer are slashed
0: in what event does slashing happen slashing happens only if there is a provable fault on uh, as communicated by the service contract so essentially when you're opting into a service officially what you're opting into is the slashing conditions of a particular service contract and a service contract may have for example if you're running a chain the service contract will have a mechanism where like if somebody submits a proof that you signed two different block numbers right like as a validator in the sui network you actually signed two different blocks at the same height it's a simple proof you just include the two uh, block headers and your signature along with the block header and you know you can ethereum can then validate that you have actually misbehaved on it and so that could be an example of a service contract but service contracts can have very general slashing conditions for example Somebody may write a service contract which says that if this DAO says that you misbehaved, I'm going to slash you. We don't want to encourage these kinds of things, but I is a permissionless system, so there is a scope for people to write very general slashing contracts. For example, if you want to run an Oracle service, which is nominally decentralized, you have like all these people participating and so on. But when, but how do you know whether the you know people gave wrong Oracle inputs? Maybe one way that people do, and right now Chainlink, for example, has a proposal, which is that there is a backstop oracle, which is you get like thousands of people who are community members and others and whatever to like vote on what the, whether the oracle input was right or not. And if they vote that your oracle input was wrong, you may lose your stick. So this is like having a backstop layer. Of course, you're trusting the backstop layer. That's obvious, but this lets you opt in to that nuanced slashing condition, which You know, maybe Dan is okay with, but Sam's not okay with, and I'm okay with, right? Or it may be that you get slashed if like a Coinbase, if an aggregate of a Coinbase, Binance, and some other feed disagrees with you. So what slashing conditions you opt into is up to your degree of freedom, right? Like that's what it is in general. But of course, we want to steward it in a way that like we don't get into contentious slashing conditions, so initially, our uh, idea is we want to have objectively verifiable slashing conditions, not subjective DAO-based slashing conditions. So that's that's the one that is safest for everybody to opt into. We're also thinking of building a subjective veto, uh, like a like a DAO comprised of reputed members from Ethereum and other com- uh, other community members building stuff on top, who could. The only thing they can do is to veto a slashing. And the reason you, and only if a majority of them vote on it, they can veto a slashing. And the reason you want it is what if there is smart contract programming errors in the slashing contract? Because people are writing slashing contracts and they may intentionally or most likely unintentionally create bugs in the slashing contract. You do not want an event where like all of ETH is restaked and then they all get slashed en masse because somebody forgot to check an if condition or something. So we have this, so essentially you can think of slashing in eigenlayer is designed to be only in the extreme cases, and it needs to go through two steps. One is there's an objectively verifiable contract that certifies that slashing has to happen, and a committee agrees to that only then slashing happens. So we're just trying to create Uh, frictions on slashing. So that's the structure of slashing on eigenlayer. And the second question that you asked is, uh, how does Ethereum get to know that slashing has happened? And here you can segregate it into the two demographics that I talked about. The number one demographic is uh, liquid restaking. In liquid restaking, there is no need for Ethereum to know anything. It's the liquid stake derivative that just changing hands from one person to another person. So it doesn't affect the Ethereum protocol and as far as people setting withdrawal credentials the ideal thing for to happen on eigenlayer would be instantly as soon as slashing is triggered on eigenlayer the thing that happens is eigenlayer contract goes and triggers a withdrawal of that money instantly because you know that you know whoever has staked they have misbehaved so you can actually go and withdraw it instantly and then slash them so that would be uh, the protocol for slashing on uh, the uh, protocol for Ethereum to get to know when slashing happens on Eigenlayer. But this is uh, this technical feature is called Smart Contract Triggered Withdrawals in Ethereum. It's not yet there in the, the upcoming Shanghai upgrade, but it will be eventually uh, there. There is a lot of other people for whom this is relevant. So we are hoping that this gets implemented. But... Immediately for the short term, the way it's going to work is validators, when they trigger the withdrawals, only then they'll basically get slashed. But the reason we don't think this is going to be serious is firstly, the eventual upgrades will be coming, which has the smart contract triggered withdrawals. And in the meantime, anyway, people are not yet, uh, we expect a lot of the initial adoption to come from things like liquid staking derivatives, because right now, even withdrawals not you can't switch withdrawals without friction. So,
1: If you can't tell, we love data here at Blockroots Research, and Chainalysis, the leading blockchain analytics company, shares this passion with us. We use data to extract alpha and find the next thing coming in DeFi, but Chainalysis is doing the gritty work and building trust in blockchains. To onboard the next trillion dollars of capital into the industry, we need to grow safe consumer access to cryptocurrency and promote more financial freedom with less risk.
3: Chainalysis has some of the most comprehensive and reliable data in the space, and they use this data to power a full suite of their solutions that can be utilized by industry professionals. Best-in-class training and certifications are also led by Chainalysis and some of the brightest minds in the space. If you haven't heard of Chainalysis, you got to check them out, and we'll link to them in the show notes.
1: So when you think about the liquid staking stick, liquid staking uh, landscape today, right? So we have you know, some market leaders with Lido being a large percentage of the liquid staking. Eth outstanding. Uh, you mentioned Coinbase as well. That's kind of they fall in that, that second place uh, position. Is there a point when you're going down that list uh, where you feel like uncomfortable using a, a like a particular uh, a particular provider's uh, staked ETH derivative? Right. I mean, that's a great, great, great question. It's like this huge risk associated with like uh, eyeballs coming at them to to come uh, exploit the ETH there. So I'm curious if like certain derivatives would be uh, whitelisted or what that process looks like.
0: Yes. So zooming out a little bit, I think what is going to happen is, and then in general, I think for blockchains, uh, there are things that need to be subjective. And this is a great example, right? Like which liquid staking derivatives need to be like allowed, right? And our general thesis for these highly subjective things, which impact things like trust and risk and other things, is the paradigm we call intersubjectivity. Intersubjectivity is you're trying to push the agency to the edges as much as possible. Okay, so what is the edge in our market? Is instead of Eigenlayer dictating which, like um, ERC twenty tokens, which is what these like liquid-staking derivatives are, can be acceptable and which are not acceptable in some kind of like a mass scenario. Each service. Each service, like a data availability or a new chain or whatever, can specify which ERC-20 tokens they want to accept. So we push that judgment, which is a dynamic, evolving thing, to the edges, to the middleware. So you are running some gaming service and you don't care. You just want to maximize like all the different people that participate. You may choose something different. Or somebody who is very conservative on the extreme end of the decentralization spectrum they may choose something completely different. In fact, they may choose to not accept any liquid staking derivative. Say that only home stakers, everybody else, not allowed. In fact, we think EigenLayer, by providing this expressivity, can actually increase the can actually let the market discover the price of decentralization, the value of decentralization. And for example, you could come in and say that hey, only home stakers can get certain rewards because. My service needs to be run on a fully decentralized network. I do not want any centralized operators to participate. And, you know, that's something that you should be able to express. And this could increase the differential reward that a home staker gets relative to a liquid staking derivative, which is a dynamic we've never had in the history of Ethereum, is there is no preferential value of decentralization by creating a market for decentralized trust. We are letting the market discover the true value of decentralized trust, and as opposed to the value of economic trust, which I'm not downplaying. For example, there may be $20 billion or $15 billion on highly centralized staking derivatives. And it's totally okay for that for people to value it because their system that they're building depends on economic value because they know if, even if it's just all held by one entity, If they misbehave, they're going to be able to slash that $15 billion. That is the root of trust that somebody will operate on. Some of the services will require native decentralization because they do not have slashing or they cannot have slashing. For example, transaction inclusion is, you know, or transaction exclusion is not a slashable event. Like when you're constructing a chain, you know, Dan may say, hey, I saw this transaction and I included it. And Sam will say, oh, no, I didn't see it. I didn't include it. Like, but he may have actually seen it. Like Censorship is not a provable violation. So you cannot slash for censorship. And so somebody may say, no, actually, censorship is very, very important to me. So I'm going to go to the edge and say that I'm going to run it on the most decentralized network possible. And my rewards only accrue to those that I actually let to participate in my system. Why are they participating? They're participating because your new chain or new service has some its own incentive mechanisms, which maybe it has its own token and it is giving a fraction of those tokens to these guys. It may be that it doesn't have a token. It just has a mechanism by which fees paid to that system accrue to the stakers, a fraction accrues to the stakers, a fraction accrues to the innovator or the creator. So it is up to each service to come up with like what the incentive mechanics is and then up to the stakers to then react to it by opting in or not opting in.
3: That is one of the more interesting concepts I have heard in a while. That's super exciting to think about, actually, like seeing a market price for a decentralized you know, validator set, essentially. Um, but I, I want to move on to uh, ask uh, a question I've been wondering, which is, what what is the difference in security between a roll up that you know let's say isn't using eigenlayer for anything and is just settling to ethereum versus a side chain uh, or a commit chain like polygon like at, at this point it
0: seems kind of convoluted as to what security model is the best yeah no it's I, okay i think it's clear that the roll up security is higher than a commit chain security not bringing eigenlayer in at the moment right the roll-up security is better than eigenlayer security once roll-ups are well-developed and actually the contracts are written and there's no governance hooks and the fraud proofs are working and the, like whatever, right? Like you have a whole bunch of things to get to that. But suppose we get to that, then the roll-up security is better than the commit chain security. So where, what is the scope of like a restake chain on eigenlayer? Like what is the security model that, that uh, you will inherit? Okay. So the way I like to think about things like chains is instead of, thinking of, instead of thinking about security as some abstract concept, you can ask what are the particular features that you're asking in your uh, security. And I'll list four things I think, which are po- possibly the most important when you're running a chain. You want censorship resistance. That's one kind of security that you want. You want reorg resistance. Somebody claiming X is a chain, and then later Y is a chain, that's not, that's not valid. You want um, data availability, which means you wanna make sure that the claimed data is actually published and people who wanted it could have downloaded it at that time. And then you want validity, right? You wanna make sure that the data, the claimed state transitions are actually true. So when you're building something on Eigenlayer, you have to write specific slashing conditions for each of these things. Things like censorship resistance don't have slashing conditions because it's not provable unless you want to trust a DAO to like approve, uh, you know, censorship uh, slashing. But you can look at the other three, which are, um, Reorg resistance. Reorg resistance is one of those things which is very easy to slash because if somebody did a reorg, it's very provable in a finalizing protocol. You should never have two blocks at the same height. You can ask why did these people sign on these two blocks, or whatever, and then you can go and slash them. And then you can uh, look at data availability which is a little bit more intricate and the way we would suggest if somebody is building on eigenlayer is use eigenda which we haven't talked about till now which is just a data availability service run by each stakers and one of the key defining factors of eigenda is that it doesn't require all the nodes to download all the data it is a fully sharded fully horizontally scaled system where every node only downloads a very little portion of the data still you get the security of the entire system and so you would want to use something, some service like that so that you don't have to, to do it just for your chain. So it's automatically modular. But the most important thing I think comes on validity. Because right now what's happening is a rollup makes a claim and then that claim uh, has to be proven onto Ethereum before you know it, that, that claim is uh, acceptable with the full security. What you can do on Eigenlayer, especially if you think of things like zero knowledge proofs, which are basically just, I think more more correctly just called validity proofs. If you are just doing validity proofs. uh, What you could do is instead of having to, for a rollup to wait for that validity proof to be returned to Ethereum. Why are you waiting? You're waiting mainly because you want to, there is a cost of checking even the validity proof on Ethereum. You know, it may take like a 1 million gas just for that. And you don't want to pay it every block. You'd rather pay it every hour, right? And so because gas price on Ethereum is expensive and and throughput so scarce, you want to do this. But instead on Eigenlayer, what you could do is you could have like all the Eigenlayer nodes check the proofs instantly and send you a certificate that the proofs have been checked. And this could be done at like, native latency, it could be like 500 milliseconds before which you got this certificate from this committee that actually it's valid and you have that much economic security backing it, which is measurable, right? It may not be 20 billion or whatever the Ethereum security is, but you know exactly how much has opted into your particular like service of validity proof checking. And then you got the certificate and then, you know, people outside, right? Like your roll-up clients have an instant confirmation with very high economic security, which is not at all dependent on your roll-up token or anything like that. So this broadens the design space. So zooming out broadly, what I'm saying is the way we think about things built on Eigenlayer is not like just take a Cosmos SDK and dump it on top of Eigenlayer. I think that's not necessarily an optimal way to build things. You want to figure out like each module, like where does it sit best? And so... And, and then compose these modules in the right way in order to get, extract the most power and most scalability and least cost from the eigenlayer paradigm. And the way I think about it is just like dApps on Ethereum had a huge composability premium, right? Like you had, you know, you have the Uniswap and then you have the, uh, the stable coin, and then you have the Aave and all these things compose with each other in some beautiful way. What we want to do is to provide this common process network on which these distributed systems that people are building for sequencing, for for, uh, various things, for data availability and for validity proof checking, all of these things compose to create new chains and systems as emergent behaviors. So that's, that's our view on what, how Eigenlayer can, can plug into the modular paradigm.
3: Do you mind elaborating a little bit more on EigenDA and how it kind of differs from, I guess, Celestia or Polygon Avail? Like what's unique about your design choices?
0: Yeah, um, I think the most important thing, the most obvious thing is that it's run by Ethereum stakers. So you're inheriting aspects of the Ethereum plus network. So that's the obvious thing. But there are fundamentally different design choices that underlie uh, and engineering architecture that underlies EigenDA as opposed to some of these other systems. Um, The next, I think, most important thing, the first one is that, oh, it's run by Ethereum stakers. And the reason this is important is imagine you're an Ethereum rollup. There are two aspects to why you want to be a roll up. You want to borrow security, that's one aspect. The second aspect is you want to be aligned with the Ethereum community. And the way you you know the the way alignment is created in totally permissionless systems is by aligning economic incentives, right? You're basically saying, "Hey, I'm a roll up. I'm actually paying a certain fee to the ETH stakers and ETH holders and so on." So, they're actually getting a portion of the value from me running the system. Because there's in a totally permissionless system, there is no way to go and make a deal with the Ethereum company and get alignment. The only alignment happens out of permissionless economic alignment because, you know, the economics of the system basically align itself with the Ethereum ecosystem. Now, imagine you're a roll-up and you want to use a data availability system. And the, the structure of a roll-up is that the dominant aspect of the fees go to the data availability system the dominant aspect of the fees don't go to settlement because in settlement, you're just checking one validity proof, but the data availability is linear in the total number of transactions that you're actually uh, ex- you know, executing on your rollup. So the dominant fraction of the fees go to the data availability layer. And if you're basically paying all that fee to a different ecosystem, right, which is not Ethereum, then you are much more... In the economic sense, uh, a Celestia rollup or a Polygon avail rollup than you are an Ethereum roller. So, today, pre Eigenlayer, pre eigen DA, the only way that you have to be a pure, you know, to have full economic alignment with the Ethereum ecosystem is by actually writing data into the Ethereum like protocol, which is, you know, as call data into transactions and so on. And with the upcoming upgrades of, EIP four eight four four, which is called proto sharding and dunk sharding, you, this capacity increases, and we're very uh, favorably uh, inclined towards these upgrades because these provide the full Ethereum security, as well as enhancing the data availability capacity. But from our own, uh, you know, team perspective, we are actually way more bullish on crypto than that is implied by the data bandwidths of like 4844 and uh, dang sharding. You know, having tens of kilobytes per second in 4844 and maybe a megabyte per second in dang sharding over a several year period, we think is not enough. There's going to be very sophisticated expression of digital platforms like fully on-chain games, fully on-chain social and things like that. And like we're building the substrate for the metaverse we need to make sure that there is much more data bandwidth that is available and eigenda is taking a view that we need gigabytes per second or maybe even a terabytes per second in like a five to ten year period and we're starting with a platform that can already handle like 10 megabytes per second so eigenda is uh so that's that's a economic alignment so the first point I said is, The uh, Ethereum stakers are being uh, participating, which means you get economic alignment, right? That's the, uh, it's a long story for that. But the second one that you get with something like EigenDA is, it is the only thing that happens in EigenDA is data availability. This is very different from uh, other systems that have been built like Polygon Avail or Celestia and so on where you have a new trust network, which I already talked about, but you also have a consensus protocol running on top of which data availability is running. Because they're building new ecosystems, they have to do everything. right. They have a new trust network, they have a new consensus protocol on which their data availability runs. EigenDA is a pure data availability system. There is no consensus, which means, you know, consensus, the, the formal way of defining consensus is a total ordering of events. And there is no total ordering of events happening on EigenDA. EigenDA is a pure data availability system. And this actually provides insane amounts of scaling and latency ability, okay? Because you're not totally ordering events, what could happen is, let's say Dan and Sam want to write a huge amount of data into EigenDA. Dan sends his like whole bulk of data into, he opens separate connections, sends the data to the EigenDA system. He gets a certificate immediately saying his data is available. And Sam in parallel is doing this and the system, there is a complex process in the distributed system. If two things happen simultaneously, how to resolve the ordering among them is a very complex process, which is what takes up pretty much all of the latency and overheads in a consensus protocol is the full ordering of events. But in EigenDA, what we would do is we would just give Dan a certificate saying his data is available and Sam a certificate saying his data is available. How these data availability guarantees are ordered is not up to EigenDA, it's up to our mother chain, Ethereum. So when these certificates then roll back into Ethereum, that's when events get ordered. So what this does is this breaks the the latency requirement for when you can get a data availability certificate, which is a pretty insane thing. Like on EigenDA, you could get a certificate for data availability in 500 milliseconds. You send the data to the DA system, you get a certificate, I'm just talking about the theoretical limits, right? Like you can get a 500 milliseconds and you're not waiting for this to be returned into the Ethereum block. You can write it later, but you who got the certificate, the quorum certificate immediately know that the data is available with the EigenDA security, which is, this is a superpower in designing things like I want to build an MEV system where one of the things that the MEV relay does today is it guarantees that the block builder's data is available. It is a single point of centralization, and we talk about it a lot in the Ethereum ecosystem, like how much this is a problem. But you can completely decentralize the relay using something like EigenDA. So the scope of what can be done when you have a data availability system with ultra low latency is actually quite broad. And the reason we can do it is it is not a chain. It is not a chain. It doesn't give you any guarantees of relative ordering, but that's exactly all you need. Like the block proposer in a MEV system needs to know that the data is available. They don't need to know, oh, whether builder one sent their data first or builder two sent their data first. That's not the claim that they're verifying. So by breaking everything down to their atomic features, the only certificate that IGDA is giving is that of data availability rather than an ordering among all data availability certificates actually gives us massive scope to innovate on the architecture, both scaling, latency. I just highlighted latency, but there's a whole other reason why similarly throughput can be massively turbocharged because the only thing it does is data availability. It doesn't do anything else. And because it is so native to the Ethereum ecosystem, because it's run by Ethereum stakers and so on, it can participate in the MEV management and other things that are part of the Ethereum ecosystem. It'd be rather weird that you know, to do an MEV check on Ethereum, I have to go to some other ecosystem and get it checked and come back. It doesn't really make sense. So that these are some of the benefits of the eigen-DA system that we're building.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's so, like, I hope uh, our producers, like, just cut to my face smiling that whole time because it's, it's, the value prop is, is really exciting uh, and is kind of really pushing Ethereum, uh, pushing it further along in its scalability roadmap. So super exciting to me. And when I think about... You know, so like my understanding is EigenDA is going to be a use case built on top of Eigenlayer. And if we think about like what is the scalability limit or capacity of Eigenlayer? So can one, like let's say, you know, it relies on stake, staked ETH to be restaked to each different use case that's built on top uh, of Eigenlayer. So can one staked ETH be restaked to multiple different use cases or am I like limited by the amount of total native staked ETH?
0: Great question. So... In fact, our ideal is every unit of stake is restaked on every service. That's our ideal, okay? Why am I saying this? And it's, it's, it, it, it triggers some alarm bells in people's head. They're like, oh man, this is over-leveraging stake across all these things and so on. Let me make an analogy which will make this maybe much, uh, much more uh, uh, analogous to an existing situation that exists today. Every unit of stake supports every DApp built on Ethereum. Every unit of stake supports every DApp built on Ethereum. Okay, and oh my God, is it's overleveraging? It's not going to work. It's not new. People said this about Ethereum when people talked about, you know, having a common platform. You know, from the Bitcoin days, when you first start talking about a universal platform on which all the different dApps are going to live. People said, hey, how are we going to have enough security to support all these dApps? The dApps are going to keep growing. And then like, what happens? You know, guess what happens? ETH grows in value. That's what happens. And because, you know, go back four years, right? Ethereum had like maybe, you know, imagine it was proof of stake just for simplicity. It's the same story for proof of work." Uh, four years back, the total like uh, available staking on Ethereum was uh, the total available, uh, total market cap of Ethereum was maybe a few hundred million, right? And it was supporting like few hundred million worth of dApps. And if somebody came and told you, no, no, Ethereum is going to support like $300 billion worth of dApps sitting on top, be like, you know, that doesn't make sense. It's super over leveraged. It's kind of crazy. It's going to blow up, but it didn't blow up. And the reason it doesn't blow up is ETH has grown commensurate in value to the total applications built on top. The same dynamic is is possible on Eigenlayer. Eigenlayer is funneling most of the value back to the ETH, and ETH itself grows in value relative to every application that is built on top. And just like Ethereum created this massive pooled security network effect, as you have more pooled security, it attracts more applications to be built on top because you know i don't have to go searching for security i have a place of security that i can come to it's the same thing that can happen with eigenlayer okay having said that let's say you're very concerned that okay if i tell you hundreds of these different distributed systems are relying on the same ethereum security well it is large it is 20 billion or whatever that is supporting all these things but you're like hey but i don't know how much personal security i'm getting okay then actually the same answer same question you can ask us at dap and you don't have an answer to it right you may want to note that but let's say i want to give you an answer and the answer that we'll give you is you can buy insurance bonds on slashing okay so because i have 20 billion restaked on eigenlayer 20 billion can be redistributed when there is slashing and when when, when this 20 billion dollar quorum misbehaves not only on one service but on tens of services then there's a contention. All these services are asking, who's the slashed money going to go to? And the way we resolve it is you have pre-bought insurance bonds against slashing. So you can say, yeah, actually out of this 20 billion, I'm running a bridge. and It's very important that I have more uh, slashing bonds than the amount of value I'm transferring every hour or whatever. And I'm going to basically make sure that I buy insurance bonds. And insurance bonds of slashing will be on a market that you can actually buy. So what's happening is you are getting the benefit of pooled security, right? Because to attack your service, it is not sufficient to attack your service. It is the guy has to coordinate across all this $20 billion of capital and try to attack 30 other services, which is already a huge bar and and enough of a security for many applications. But no, you want more. We can actually give you more by actually selling your insurance bonds on the particular slashing priority that you get. So you will be guaranteed like that amount of slashing insurance bonds, no matter what happens. So that's the dual model of uh, security on island.
3: That's a, a lot to digest there. So it sounds like a really ambitious uh, roadmap, I guess. What is the timeline for these things? Like, what order are you building them out? And then also, I didn't know if you had any update on Mantle. I saw BitDAO is working on a module L2 that's going to be with uh, uh, both EigenDA and EigenLayer. So I was curious how that was coming along.
0: Yeah, uh, we're very excited about uh, Mantle and uh, uh, the uh, new innovations they're trying to build, bring into the roll-up stack where uh, they're plugging into things like EigenDA using eigenlayer more broadly uh, across the uh, across the stack um you'll see more announcements on this on that coming up you know we're doing a joint twitter spaces later this month um beyond that uh, as far as our roadmap uh, our vision uh, of our you know project is basically to maximize the surface of permissionless innovation Like I told you, the reason we got into this project is we were kind of frustrated at at the rate of innovation, at the core infrastructure layers. And we think these, an amazing, amazing value proposition of blockchains, which not enough people have understood, is that it enables permissionless innovation. And it's such a powerful thing if you think about it, right? Like the innovator doesn't have to be trusted, and so our goal is maximizing the service area of this permissionless innovation. Um, but to do this, we need to have enough trust in the system. We need to have enough restake. So we are trying to bootstrap the system by initially building one service ourselves, which is the Eigen DA, but also bringing on a few partners to build services on top, which, are, you know, which we work together closely so that we can actually monitor how integrations and other things work. And then eventually, so we hope much of this will happen this year eigenlayer eigen get launched on mainnet maybe some partnered services get launched and then after that what we want to do is to open up the platform so that anybody can build any service on top of eigenlayer which is really the core promise of the system
1: all right sure um, the people want to know the people is probably me but this just sounds like such an attractive value proposition um you know increasing the serv- service area and design space for developers is something I'm super passionate about, and I'm uh, really intrigued by and as well as improving the, the scalability of Ethereum, Ethereum. And if we also add to that, now this marketplace for bonds, you know, I, I see a lot of value being thrown around in this ecosystem. Uh, so I'm curious, like, how is that going to flow back to uh, eigenlayer itself? Um, and like, is there plans to work a token into this? Or is this more of, you know, like a public good type design?
0: Yeah, so there are certain governance levers that are needed to maintain the system. Like, for example, I was talking about a veto for uh, for slashing. That could be either run by the DAO itself. And we don't like uh, having uh, a tokenized DAO fundamentally running things like a slashing veto because what if you buy a majority of the tokens and then you can attack the system? So there's a clear, clear crypto economic cost. Whereas I think, you know, getting reputed members of the community is a much more solid way to actually uh, man a DAO like that. So we're working through various aspects of governance, but uh, we do want to decentralize. For example, how do we elect the reputed DAO, right? Like, is it going to be just us? It could be in the beginning, but eventually we want a governance mechanism for things like that. Um, As far as, you know, value accrual, I think the core idea is simple, you know, a fraction of the fees paid to the stakers is taken by the the uh, iron layer system this is required for not only maintenance of the operations which is for example there is fees to be paid there is eth gas to be paid for like updates to whenever you write like a quorum signature to ethereum we have to pay a fee and all of these things so there is concrete operational expenses as well as the expense that goes into development and innovation on this platform so that's really the core model is you know take a fraction of the fees that cost to the stakers.
3: got it now that's honestly a perfect spot to to wrap it up but i do have one more question and thank you so much for being so generous with your time but um something i was meaning to ask was uh i, I feel like bridges and oracles are two Kind of really important uh, parts of, of crypto, and they're also probably the least secure. You could argue. So, have you talked with any current projects in the bridge or Oracle space that are interested in you know integrating with EigenLayer? And if so, are you able to share who? We are
0: talking to people. I'm not able to share who, but you can uh, expect some some information on that in the coming months. Yeah, there is a lot of so. Just to highlight that a bit. It's a little difficult to build slashable oracles on a restaking paradigm because, you know, who is, what is the ground truth for, like, how how do I objectively prove that Bitcoin to USD is not $1 but $20,000, right? Like, it's not an objective fact. It is relative to something happening in the real world. So there is a lot of intricacies in designing careful oracles. But bridges is one thing where actually you can potentially do it because it is claims about another blockchain. And a blockchain itself has like an execution semantics. It has a consensus semantics. You can create slashing conditions relative to them. So that's the space of uh, things that uh, that can be built. But there are, you know, Oracle designs like the Chainlink 2.0 Oracle design can be adopted on something like EigenLayer.
3: Well, I am excited to keep tracking. I can closely. We're gonna to have to have you come back on in like three, four, five, or six months because I could sit here and talk to you for a whole another hour. Absolutely,
0: I would love to do it. This was such an awesome conversation.
3: Yeah, thanks so much. We'll see. You. We'll see you next time.